Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 295. I am your host. Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Counting down the days until SofaCon. I'll get a little bit into that later on, but I'll tell you what's coming up in today's show. First up is Science News with our very own JFJ Campanella. Then the main fiction is Blood Cloth by Ray Cluley, narrated by Ruth Stearns. That is today's show number 295. Do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So... See, I was sort of shouting that at you. So, SofaCon, there is but 30 tickets left for SofaCon. Within two weeks, we've nearly sold out. That is just fantastic, you know what I mean? Come along if you want to. As you know, hammering this in is the 28th of July there. That would be fantastic. We had a practice run of the SF Signal versus Geek's Guy at the Galaxy quiz. And... Uh, we got them all, everyone except for John Donardo from SF Signal, who was guest of honour at ApolloCon. Guest, not guest of honour, guest fan, guest of honour. So John couldn't be with me there, but we did have John Joseph Adams and David Barkirtley up against JP France from SF Signal. And yes, it's going to be fun and games whether we can pull that off in half an hour or just fall down and, you know, crash and burn. But I would hope you'd love you to see us there. Like I say, tickets are still on sale. There is 30 left, so it'd be lovely to see. You know, if you want to come along, it'd be fantastic. Do you know what I mean? It'd, be, it'd mean a lot to us. It'd mean a lot to everyone. You know, Ames there as well. The, it, the Ames has got the kind of the one-to-one with Louise McCaster-Bajold, and that's just going to be stunning. Do you know what I mean? Amy's, because I, to be quite honest, don't know much about Louis, 
but I've certainly now got me holiday reading because a couple of days before or after SofaCon is when we go on our happy holidays, the family. And I've got one of Lois's books there as well, just to kind of get into the groove on that. So come along to SofaCon. We'd love to see you there. Just a celebration of everything that's Starship Sofa. First up is JJ Campanella, Science News Jim. Greetings and post-mortal computations, my fine listeners. And welcome to this June 2013 Science News Update. I'm your host for this pre-SofaCon science podcast, Jim Campanella. Before any actual science, let me answer a question that several listener emails have posed. You guys want to know if I'm going to be on the SofaCon panel, and the answer is that I'm very sorry, but I am not. Tony Smith has been trying to convince me to do it for a while, but I have had several reasons to turn him down. First and foremost is the amount of time involved in preparing a decent visual presentation. It would take several times longer to prepare anything visual than what I spend now preparing one of these audio recordings each month. Tony, of course, answered no need, just get up there and talk. But I couldn't do that. I'd have to have a complete accompanying PowerPoint presentation. I mean, nobody wants to see my ugly puss as a talking head for half an hour without any visuals. It grieves me that I don't have the time to do something better. Second, despite the fact that I do talk to groups of students for a living, I am simply not comfortable doing it live on camera. No, I can't explain it, but I'm frankly freaked out with a camera in my face. Third, I do not have a quality microphone, camera, slash computer set up that would be acceptable for such a conference. Strangely enough, the computer I use exclusively to record podcasts is about 10 years old. It works with fantastic fidelity, but it has no internet capabilities at all. I have never been able to find its match in a newer computer as far as sound is concerned, which makes no sense to me, since you would expect new computers to be better, not worse. Every other computer I've used for recording sounds like I'm speaking through a tin can, I have no idea why the same high-end microphone would work beautifully with one computer and not others. To sum it up, I discussed this with a friend of mine who noted succinctly, quote, Oh, so you're like the Beatles in their last couple of years. You're just a studio act. You don't go on tour, unquote. Precisely, that is me. Sorry, folks, but unless things change, I don't tour. Let's get on with science. First story of the night was reported by Science Weekly today, and I'm passing it on to you. You may consider it barely a science story and more of a tech story, but I'm intrigued because scenarios such as the one I'm about to relate have gone through my mind late at night while staring drearily at a dark ceiling unable to sleep. Let's say that I have spent months narrating a novel. The whole thing is now up on my website but it has not been premiered yet to the public. And then I get hit by a truck. Well, what happens to my podcast? It will never see the light of day because I am as dead as a doorknob, and no one else has full access to my website. If I'm smart, I had a will that included a beneficiary for my website, email, and passwords. If I lack such foresight, then my dulcet tones for that last book cast 
will be forever lost to the world. I am not the only one who has thought of such problems. In April, Google started a new inactive account manager for several of their owned websites, which lets you designate an heir who will control your Google data when you die. Obviously, this does not work universally for personal websites, only for Google sites, but it is still very cool. You choose a length of inactivity, a month, two months, a year, two years, and if your accounts are ever to go quiet for that chosen time period, Google will notify your heirs that they've inherited access to your Gmail correspondence, your YouTube videos, your Picasso photo albums, whatever you specify that they have control over. A number of services can help with digital estate planning by designating password recipients or deleting accounts or files when you die. But communication and privacy laws have yet to catch up with technology. While Facebook made it possible for family members to convert the page of a loved one into a memorial a few years ago, the company has faced multiple lawsuits from family members who wanted deeper access to their kids' Facebook accounts after a sudden death. So apparently, Facebook may want to think about a similar service to Google. Clearly, it's important for people to consider who will have access and control over their digital data when the time comes. But this focus on privacy and access ignores the emotional significance of a loved one's digital legacy. Studies by Dr. William Odom of Carnegie Mellon University suggests that there may be something fundamental and ancient about how we interact with our items left behind by the dead. While there currently aren't any easy ways to curate digital heirlooms, people still try. Odom says that many people enact similar rituals with digital objects that people use with material ones. He accounts that one woman had 25 or so cherished text messages from her dead husband. She kept the SIM card, an old phone, and an ornate box and would take them out and read them from time to time. If you think that is a bit macabre, how about this one? A woman from England buried her husband with his cell phone and then kept sending him texts after he died. Romantic, but a bit creepy for my taste. Odom and his colleagues conclude that bereavement in the digital age might be easier if we had devices that allowed us to interact with digital objects in the same way that humans have interacted with heirlooms throughout the ages. As one woman who didn't like the idea of storing special digital photos on a CD remarked, quote, they deserve better than that, unquote. Based on comments like that one, the researchers have designed three devices that display a deceased person's photos, tweets, and other digital heirlooms on screens embedded in oak veneer boxes. Well, how about some slightly harder science news for the week? This month, the Supreme Court of the U.S. ruled that you cannot patent naturally occurring genes in the human genome. That means that simply planting your flag in a gene and saying that it belongs to you is not going to cut it anymore. That will not be recognized legally. However, let's make something clear. The court unanimously ruled last week that human genes are not patentable. However, it made a clear distinction between naturally occurring gene sequences 
and those created synthetically in a lab. The Supreme Court case questioned the validity of two patents held by a Salt Lake City biotechnology company called Myriad Genetics, Inc. Those patents were filed for two genes that are associated with breast and ovarian cancer, BRCA1 and BRCA2. In the end, the court decided that merely isolating a naturally occurring gene is not an invention because the gene is a product of nature which cannot be patented. On the surface, the decision appears to benefit academic researchers and nonprofit research institutions, allowing them to share genomic data more openly and freely. In addition, the decision should open up the market for genetic testing providers increasing competition and reducing the costs of these services. Meanwhile, biotech companies who hold myriad-style patents would appear to be the losers as the decision puts these patents at risk of being invalidated. But will academia and industry really be affected by this decision? Um, no, not really. I don't think so. That's because the court upheld the patentability of modified gene sequences, such as a complementary DNA or plasmid sequences or viral vector sequences. And those might be worth significantly more in terms of future revenue than the original gene sequence. In addition, as researchers have sequenced more and more human genomes, the patentability of naturally occurring human genes has probably already been compromised based on a lack of novelty. For example, the decision will allow other companies to begin testing patents for BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, which could reduce the cost of those genetic tests through competition. However, if another company uses methods or cDNA sequences that Myriad has already patented, they would be infringing upon those patents. Some scientists have already argued that there's really little difference between naturally occurring DNA and DNA synthesized in the lab, but the court believes that a technician is indeed creating something new. The upshot of all this leads to a serious loophole that I am not sure from a legal standpoint I can even address very well. Just how much of a gene has to be re-engineered by the technician before that gene now belongs to your company to be patented? Can you change one base pair, and is it now a new gene? Ten base pairs? A hundred? A thousand? Will patentability be based on a certain percentage of genetic engineering alteration? I have no idea. And frankly, I'm not sure that anybody else does either. Oh, and just as a postal script to the story, the breast cancer gene tests are the bread and butter of Myriad Genetics Company right now. They make up about 80% of their overall revenue. So it's actually not a big surprise that a day after that Supreme Court ruling, Myriad Genetic stocks dropped by over 17%. And from what I've seen, they've actually dropped quite a bit more since then. Oops. Now, the next story should make those of you who still insist that plants can communicate telepathically feel somewhat justified. Doctors Monica Gagliano and Michael Renton of the University of Western Australia published a paper this month in the journal BMC Ecology that suggests that healthy plants communicate and can encourage each other to grow. 
Now, I'm still not sure exactly what that means, but let me tell you what the authors did. Gagliano and Renton showed that chili plants sprouted faster and were healthier compared with those grown in isolation when they were grown next to quote-unquote good neighbors, such as basil, that help inhibit weed growth and pests. Remarkably, the scientists got the same result even when the plants were separated by black plastic so that they could not exchange light or chemical signals. Somehow, the chili seedlings could tell what kinds of plants their neighbors were and respond accordingly. Gagliano speculates that the answer involves acoustic vibrations generated, either intentionally or not, inside plant cells. These are known, by the way, as thigomorphic signaling processes. Gagliano thinks acoustic signaling would be a rapid and easy way for plants to identify their neighbors and anticipate their actions. In contrast, chemical signaling involves the production of specialized molecules and receptors, which is costly from a resource perspective. Renton states, quote, Whatever the signal is, we don't know if the plants produce it for the purpose of signaling or if it is an accidental byproduct that other plants just eavesdrop on, unquote. There are other unknowns as well. What structures are plants using to talk to and listen to one another? And can insects and animals spy on plant conversations and exploit them for their own purposes? To all these things, Gagliano replies, Quote, we don't know, but the data are here. Plants are doing something. I can't fully explain it, but that doesn't mean it's not happening, unquote. Note, by the way, that she never mentions telepathy. I'm just saying it was not one of the options suggested. Speaking of plants, here's another story from the latest issue of the journal Biotechniques. Dr. Kyle Taylor has begun a Kickstarter campaign to create glowing plants to replace street lamps. Yes, you heard that correctly. Taylor wants to create glow-in-the-dark trees to illuminate your way home at night. The foundation for Taylor's glowing plants project, as he calls it, lies in decades of other scientists' work with luciferin, the bioluminescent compound found in fireflies and the sequencing of genes that give animals like jellyfish their natural fluorescent glow. The Glowing Plants team used sequence analysis software to design DNA coding for a fluorescent protein that can be inserted into the genome of the plant Arabidopsis. According to the article, the plan is to fabricate the DNA using a 3D laser printer and then move it into a plant. I have no idea what that even means, and... Frankly, I don't know how you can make DNA with a laser printer, but what the heck, whatever they say. Um, according to the project's Kickstarter page, more than 5,000 people have already pledged donations, totaling almost $300,000 to fund this research. Based on that financial support and feedback, the team plans to have its first glowing plants ready by May 2014. But Taylor says he hopes the project does not stop there. Quote, There's a huge potential to use this technology to solve interesting problems, hopefully adding real-world value. What applications this technology could inspire are only limited by our imagination, unquote. 
He cautioned, of course, that these new innovations have to meet current regulations and that it's beholden to us as early pioneers in this space to approach these issues appropriately to protect future research. Okay, it does sound very cool, but here's a little problem. I only see it as cool as long as they can fit all those trees and bushes and tulips with off switches. Let me put this bluntly. Frankly, as cool as this idea is, it is equally stupid. It just seems to me that light pollution is already pretty awful across the entire world. Could you imagine if we had light-producing forests and trees and bushes and plants everywhere? Our children's children would never see the night sky again. It's just something to think about. Okay. For the next story, I will try to titillate you for the third month in a row with a sex story. I keep trying with these, but they never seem as sexy when I start to talk about them as they are when I first read them. This story has to do with chicken penises. I bet you've never seen one. There's a good reason for that. Male chickens lose them at a very young developmental age. In fact, Male chickens, quail, and most land birds have virtually no protruding outgrowth of their sex organ, which would seemingly make reproduction rather difficult. In fact, only 3% of bird species have a penis structure to aid internal fertilization. And now, scientists are finally beginning to understand why. Dr. Martin Cohen of the University of Florida has just published a paper in the journal Current Biology that explains what has happened to the chicken's penis. Cohen has shown that at later stages of embryonic development, male chickens start to express more of a protein called bone morphogenic protein, BMP4, in their developing genitalia. The excess protein increases programmed cell death in the region, cutting off penis growth, rather quite literally. The results could help scientists better understand the molecular pathway that leads to malformations and defects in other animals' reproductive organs. Cohen says, quote, Genitalia are one of the fastest evolving organs in animals. This organ system is a good example of how an evolutionary developmental approach can provide insights into development that might not be learned from studying a single organism, unquote. To understand why most birds' penises have disappeared, Cohen studied genital development in chicken-duck embryos. Contrary to his expectations, the genes associated with genital growth were expressed similarly in chick and duck genitalia. He also found similar rates of cell proliferation in the developing penises of chick and duck embryos. So he then tracked programmed cell death in the genitals of developing chick, duck, quail, and alligator embryos. Chickens and quails showed a high rate of cell death in the tip of the growing penis late in genital development, whereas ducks and alligators showed little, if any, cell death in that region. The researchers put a nail in the results of that study by showing clear evidence that the bone morphogenic protein was responsible for the shrinking penises by microsurgically implanting 
beads loaded with another protein called noggin near the developing penis. Noggin has the ability to inhibit bone morphogenic protein for activity. As a result, the cells and the chick's genital tissue continue to grow, preventing deterioration of the penis. And so, in essence, Cohen was able to get mutant chickens with hypergenital growth. Humans do have a BMP4 gene, but it's unclear if there are any human genetic defects that are due to its being misexpressed. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Remember to find an heir for your computer accounts. Don't bother to look for chicken penises. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, Squire. Jim, yes, it was getting a little bit close to the mark this, this week. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Next up is the main fiction, and it is called Blood Cloth by Ray Cluley. Real is a UK writer with 15 published short stories since 2008 and was an, anth- an anthologist of Darker Minds in 2012 with Gary McMahon. He's also the course manager of English literature at the South Downs College in the UK. He received his first award nomination with Shark Shark for Best Short Story in the British Fantasy Awards. And I'm sure this story's actually been played on, it might be on Tales to Terrify, somewhere down the line as well, I'm thinking. The narrator of this story is Ruth Stearns. Ruth got her start as a narrator by reading to her husband on cross-Florida expeditions. During feats of curriculum administration, supply the coffee and electricity she needs to write speculative fiction novels. You can get in touch with Ruth via email ruth.stearns at gmail.com or a blog let me write that dot wordpress.com Ruth thank you so much for this so the Starship Sora is very proud to present Bloodcloth by Ray Cluley Tanya drew circles in the dust on the floor while she waited for her father to come home from the caves she drew a smile in one of them intending to make a face but it didn't look right so she made it another circle within the circle She looped them together with another one, turning a half-circle herself when the floorboards nearest her knees were full. She was humming something half-remembered, but didn't know until Mother called for her to be quiet. So she was. She could hear Mother's breathing now, long and slow, and it made her think of Grandma, which made her look at the curtain hanging in front of her. She didn't like the curtain because of what it did to Grandma, but she liked to sit by it for the same reason. Mother hated it. She hated it because of Grandma, but for lots of other things as well. And she was scared of it. Tanya would understand when she was older, but she wasn't sure she wanted to. The curtain was pale at the moment, except for a fading pink near the middle where Father had wiped his hands. It was still creased and bunched a little in that area, but mostly it hung straight and heavy, its faint meaty smell barely noticeable. Folds of its flesh piled upon themselves on the floor at the corner, the rails still crooked because Father was too used to it now to make fixing it a priority. There were two dead flies in the creases there, their bodies dried husks, legs curled in tight. Tanya wondered if there were any entombed within the folds, if they would disintegrate into flakes and add their dust to the rest of it on the floor. Hummingbird? 
Tanya stopped humming again, but asked, Yes, Ma? In case there was more. She heard her mother shift in bed, the creak of the wood. What time is it? Tanya stood and brushed her skirts clean. She went over to the mantel and checked the clock there. It didn't tick, it only talked, offering a moment of quiet remembrance for each missing sound between. Tanya would sometimes get a big tick at the schoolhouse if her work was right, but father said just because the clock didn't have any didn't make it wrong. Mother had smiled, but to Tanya it always sounded like something was missing, when she noticed it at all. Usually it talked like she hummed, without knowing and barely heard. When she noticed it, though, she noticed it all the time. It's nearly six. Your father will be home soon. Tanya sat again and resumed her circles, moving dust round and round with her finger as the clock talked quietly. Talked and talked. Yes, Ma. The curtain shivered, but Tanya ignored it, pretended not to see, because she knew why it moved and what it waited for. Tanya set the table without knowing what dinner would be, laying out bowls on top of plates and lining up spoons next to forks, next to knives. She put the two candles they had in the middle and put a cushion on one chair in case Mother joined them in the kitchen. She was trying to plump it into a shape it had given up long ago when she heard the gate catch on the gravel path with a sudden sharp crunch, and then the rusty groan it only made when closing. Dad's home. He was late, the talking clock close to half past seven. But it wasn't father. It was another man from the caves, a man called Gerald who had a bushy beard but no hair on his head. Hello, Tanya. Is your mother home? He must have known she was. Everybody knew she was bedridden. Only for a little while, but everybody knew. Who is it? Mother called from her room. It's Gerald, ma'am. Your husband, he's... Well, he's working late. Gerald was calling the information from the door because Tanya hadn't invited him in yet. Ask me to bring you some dinner. Come in. I'll be with you in a few minutes. Gerald came in, giving Tanya a smile with a bottle of pop drink. She didn't have pop drink often, so it was very easy to smile back. No, don't get yourself up. It's just a bit of stewing beef and a few vegetables. I'll put it on the table. Which he did. It was more than a few vegetables, and the stew beef was wrapped in a lot of paper, so there was probably more than a bit of that, too. Tanya thought it was a nice lie, though. She twisted the lid off her bottle with it near her face so the hiss fizz of it would wet her cheek and tickle. Gerald went to the doorway where Mother's room was. It's simple enough for the little one to cook. You rest up some more. Mother said something in reply, but Tanya didn't hear it because she was swallowing. She took too much and had to burp quietly afterwards. She hid it in her hand. No, I'll show her how. Don't you worry. Can I get you something to drink? He didn't go into the room. Maybe to be polite, maybe because of the sick smell. Here, said Tanya. She went in because she was used to the sick smell now. She held up the pop drink. There was most of it left still. Her mother was laying on top of the sheets, and Tanya couldn't help but think of the flies on the curtains, though she didn't mean to. Her mother smiled because she didn't know about the flies or Tanya's thoughts, and said, No, dear, you drink it. It's delicious, you'll like it, Tanya promised. Words her mother and father had used on her plenty of times, even though sometimes it wasn't true. It tickles my nose too much, mother said. 
but she licked her lips and Tanya thought maybe it was another nice lie that adults do sometimes. Go and help Gerald in the kitchen. Then louder to Gerald. Would you like to stay for supper? Gerald was stroking his beard like he was far away, looking over at the curtain in the front room. Tanya wondered when Father would be home and wondered if the curtain wondered. Ma wants to know if you'd like to stay for supper. She took another sip of drink, a little one, to make it last longer. That's very kind, he said. He said it twice, the second time so Mother could hear as well, adding, I've got to get on back to the caves. He crouched so he was nearly Tanya's height, though he was so big he could never be so small, and asked, Do you want to learn how to cook a grown-up dinner? Tanya thought that was even better than a pop drink because she only knew how to make sandwiches without cutting them because knives were dangerous. So she nodded hard enough to put her hair in her eyes, which made Gerald laugh. When he was finished laughing, the house sounded more sad. Gerald told her to wash her hands first, then showed her how to fill the pan with enough water to cover the meat. There was a lot of it. Some of it was stringy, but he said it didn't matter because of how it would cook. He showed her how to cut the vegetables and said to use them all, even though there were a lot, because they wouldn't keep, but in the stew they would. He showed her how to use the knife properly and safely and said big chunks were better, but Tanya knew that was because it was safer. When Father cooked, he cut things really small. It will take a while to cook properly. When it starts to bubble, turn it down so it just bubbles a little bit and stir once in a while. He showed her how. And then just wait until your mother says it's ready. She'll know when. If you get hungry waiting, eat some of the carrot pieces we saved, remember? I always save a couple to nibble on. Tanya decided she loved Gerald a little bit. He came down next to her again, squatting so they weren't nearly the same height, but never quite. You know, your father works hard so you both have food in this house and so you don't have to pay tribute too often. You know that, don't you? Tanya nodded. She tipped the pop bottle up for the last of it, but the last of it was gone. And he will always try to keep things that way, all right? Even if things look bad, he'll try and make it good like it was. She nodded again, giving up on the bottle, but deciding to keep it. She'd put a flower in it for Mother's dinner tray. Gerald stood and ruffled her hair. Good, he said. That's good. He wiped his hands on his trousers after, even though her hair wasn't dirty. And then he did something unexpected. He walked quickly over to where the curtain hung and put his hands to it. He didn't wrap them up in the middle like Father did, bunching it up around his hands like he was drying them, but placed them palm flat against the flesh and let it feed. It was such a surprise that Tanya watched even though she never liked to. She watched the red spread from his fingertips, saw the lines become pink as they stretched out from his hands, only to deepen to crimson as he waited and waited, waited. With a final grunt, he withdrew his hands and stepped back. The curtain where he touched it was so dark it was black. Father never gave it that much. Right, he said. His face was still dirty from the caves, but it was white, too, around the dirt. Pale like the curtain used to be. You watch that stew now. Tanya nodded, and he left, calling a polite goodbye to Mother, but Mother was asleep again. Bye, Gerald, Tanya said for her. But the door was already closing. She heard the gravel beneath his boots as he walked away and watched his black handprints fade to dark brown and then maroon, deep red to mauve, to a fading pink. The colors of dying, that's what Mother called them. Briefly, it had been the auburn color of her hair.
Tanya watched until there was no longer any trace of tribute, by which time the stew was ready. Tanya first learnt about the curtain at the schoolhouse. She never used to want to go to school. She wanted to work in the drapery when she was older like Mother, and like Grandma used to before she got sick. Grandma told her stories about it, which was like being at school half the time anyway. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Grandma told her about Grandpa, too, who was a brave man and fought in a war but didn't come back. He wasn't killed, he just didn't come back. Father said that meant he wasn't brave at all, but Mother said there was always another way of looking at it, and he probably had his reasons, which is what Grandma said as well. There were a lot of photos of him in an album Grandma kept, a big book which was almost as cracked and leathery as Grandma. This is him when we first met, Grandma pointed out. Tanya was sitting on the bed with her, drinking tea because Grandma said she could. She didn't like it much, but she pretended to. He's younger than father. He was then, yes. And that's me. Grandma looked just like mother, and people said Tanya looked just like mother, too. So that meant she'd look just like grandma one day. You're very pretty, Tanya said, which was true, but sounded like boasting. I was a bit. Not now. I'm cleverer now, though, and that's what's important which was how they started talking about the schoolhouse where mother and father wanted her to go. Tanya didn't want to because she knew it would be expensive, and father already paid a lot to the cloth. He was the only one who could, except Tanya, and they wouldn't let her. I don't want to go, she said again to grandma, but of course grandma persuaded her it was for the best. They had a curtain at the schoolhouse bigger than the one in Tanya's house. It was mostly for teachers, but sometimes, on special days, the children had to touch it, too. The curtains are part of their lives long before they knew what they were, just like tables and chairs in the sky. When Tanya went to Koji's house once, she saw their blood cloth wasn't a curtain. It was shaped in position like a flag. When Mr. Ibagawa touched it, he used his head instead of his hands. Bowing to the top of his head met the blood cloth. When he stepped away, it looked like the flag of where they came from, Koji explained. 
Mr. Ibagawa never touched it long enough for it to go black and dark, just red. But he made up for that by doing it often. Every day, Koji said. And one day Koji would be allowed to do it too. Tani used to be jealous of that once. Mr. Ibagawa was always pale. So was Mrs. Ibagawa, but she used makeup to look that way. Mrs. Tucker at the schoolhouse said some people were so rich or famous or respected that instead of a red carpet, they were welcomed to places by a sodden blood cloth laid at their feet, so soaked that they could walk barefoot without paying tribute. Tanya didn't know if she believed that or not, but she believed most of what Mrs. Tucker taught her. She liked history lessons best because they sounded made up but weren't. That was when she first learned about the blood cloth curtains, but it was Koji who told her about Ubasade. Hummingbird, what's wrong? They were in the bedroom, bowls of stew in their laps. Tanya was looking at her mother, watching her eat. I was thinking of Grandma. Mother pulled the blankets down and sat up straighter. She looked a lot like Grandma now, especially in bed, but not so much when she sat up and shook her head so her hair hung back. I'll be all right, Mother said. Tanya nodded. This is delicious stew, Mother said. Is there much left? Gerald said enough for three days if we fill up with bread as well. Mother nodded and spooned herself another mouthful. Her hand trembled a little bit and she spilled some, but it landed back in the bowl. Gerald touched the curtain before he left, Tanya said. The spoon stopped partway to Mother's mouth, which she opened prematurely and then closed again. When she opened it the second time, she managed to speak. How? Tanya told her about him putting both hands flat on it until it went dark, leaving his prints like waving bruises. He gave it a lot. Was it because father's late? Mother began to cry. There had been an accident at the caves. Father had been standing near one of the mangles when the chain that turned it buckled and snapped. The roller dropped and fat folds of blood cloth spewed from the line behind it like a thickened tongue, spilling and spilling into itself without the heavy press of the machine to flatten and shape it. Father had reached out to push the roller back in place and his arm had been engulfed in unprocessed flesh, wrapped in heavy blood cloth that was getting heavier as it drained his limb. There had been no pain, he said, but he screamed and screamed because of what it might do, and some of the other men managed to stop the machines and pull his arm out for him, digging through the layers of blood cloth like it was laundry. His arm was mottled yellow like an old bruise. It had already withered to limp flesh and narrow bone. The rest of him was white like moonlight. I wanted to see how bad it was, Father explained, so I stayed in one of the bunkhouses for a while. I was hoping, he shrugged instead of finishing. They were sitting around the table. There was more stew cooking, reheating Tanya's and Mother's abandoned meals, but Tanya doubted she would ever eat stew again. The smell would always make her think of Mother crying and Father's hitching breath as he tried not to. I was waiting to see if it would plump up. He raised his arm from the table as if they might not know what he was talking about. He did it too quickly, not yet used to the lightness of it. I'm lucky I can still use it, I suppose. He had avoided coming home until he knew more, but after Tanya said about Gerald and the curtain, Mother guessed something bad had happened. She made Tanya go and get Gerald again, and then she made Gerald tell her what happened. You can lift it, Mother said. You can't use it. No, Father agreed. It's dried up. It was quiet between them for a long moment. 
The arteries might open up again, he said. Veins might redirect. If not, they'll have to amputate. Will you be able to work? Mother had asked Gerald the same thing, but he didn't know. Neither did father. Tanya was silent and still. She knew if she made any noise or moved, they'd remember she was there and send her to her room. This was adult talk, and normally they'd have a conversation like this in their own room, where she could still hear, but where they didn't know she could still hear. Tanya was crying without fully understanding why, but she was doing it quietly. Father's arm looked dead. It looked like the stringy meat Gerald had brought them, but with less color. They didn't cut the cloth, he said. No damage, no debt. He tried to smile for that at least, but it was weak. Suddenly, Mother struck out at Father, which was something Tanya had never seen, and it made her shriek in surprise. Mother was sick and frail, so it wasn't much, but Father flinched from her as if it burned, and then she hit him again and again. But she was sobbing by then, and Father was gathering her in his good arm and holding her close, and she cried against him instead of hitting. She hugged him and hugged him. It's all right, he hushed, whispering into her hair. He beckoned Tanya over with a tilt of his head and hugged her, too. It'll be all right. We'll be all right. The arm that held Tanya was dead and heavy on her shoulders, and his words were heavy in her heart because they didn't sound true. That's a lie, Tanya said. But Koji shrugged like he didn't care if she believed him or not. That's what they did when Mr. Olderstein stopped working. He said he wanted them to do it when he couldn't teach no more, because if he couldn't teach anymore, he couldn't do much else either. They did it in assembly, wrapped him up in the school cloth so the classes wouldn't have to tribute for a while. It was before you were here. Yeah, maybe, Tanya allowed, unable to prove otherwise. But Mrs. Gowan is a woman. Women can't contribute. Old women can, just like little girls. It's the ones in between that can't. I don't know why. Tanya thought she might know why, because Mother had told her about the special blood that made you a woman. She didn't tell Koji, though. He would think it was gross. Mrs. Gowan worked in the drapery where most women worked, although she was a supervisor instead of one of the cutters or pressers because she was old. Grandma said she sometimes did cut and press, though, if they needed people to. She'd put on special gloves. She worked a lot because her son was what Mother called special, but the kids at school called stupid and slow and other mean names because he was a grown man but acted like a baby. When Mrs. Gowan took on the sickness, she wasn't able to do much anymore. Tanya always thought they moved away, but Koji was saying she let them wrap her up in the curtain. They lay it on her like a bedsheet, he said. She did it for her son, Koji said, but couldn't explain more than that. Koji's dad said it was very noble, which was a word Tanya liked when Grandma explained it. Tanya's father said it was stupid and that it should have been the son who was curtained to help the mother because he couldn't do anything, and after her tribute, what would he do? Probably got wrapped up anyway, he said. I reckon that's what the hospitals do all the time. Father did not like the hospitals. Not many people did. When Tanya asked Mother about it, Mother asked a lot of questions, sometimes more than once, and was angry with the Ibagawas for a while. It was Grandma who explained what Noble was and why Mrs. Gowan did it. Later that year, Grandma did the same thing herself. After dinner, Tanya was told to go out and play, but not outside the fence. Mother and Father had a lot to talk about. 
They must have forgotten how late it was, probably because there'd been two dinners. But Tanya kept quiet because she wasn't usually allowed out at night. She put on her jumper, one that Grandma had knitted. It had a lamb on it, and the fluff of its fleece stuck out from the front. Tanya liked to pull it into shapes like hairstyles. She went out the front, but would go around back to hear what they said. It was dark, and the town was quiet. At the front of the house, the path twisted its way up into the mountains where the caves were. The mountains were big, jagged triangles, and you could only tell they were there because of where they cut into the sky, hiding the stars. A few of the other houses on the path had their lights on, and Tanya watched the shadows behind the curtains as people moved around inside. Window curtains that you could see through. She went around the side of the house, jumping down quietly from the porch and running through the tall weeds, slowing down when she saw the light spilling from the kitchen onto the back garden steps. If she sat on one of the low ones, she could hear them without being seen from the window. The garden was very steep. Livestock allowance, father was saying. Tanya hoped they were finally going to get a goat. We've been turned down every year we've applied. Yeah, well, things are different now, aren't they? Father sounded angry, and it made Tanya want to cry again. The lights of the town below blurred because her eyes were wet, but she didn't cry. Alan said he'd appeal about the accident, have the blood count as Come our- on, it'll go to the town kitty if it counts at all. Father had nothing to say to that. I could teach her at home, Mother continued. As long as I'm sick, I should do something useful. We're not pulling her out of school. I can't- No. This time a tear did fall, but Tanya wiped it quick as if it was never there. She didn't want to stop school, but she would if Mother said so. Look, said Father, and his voice was softer. I know you could teach her, but for how long each day before you had to rest? And it's not just about the lessons, it's about the other children. She needs to make friends and all that. Then let's move and she can make new friends. Not all towns have this stupid fucking tribute law. The idea of moving made Tanya gasp, and the bad word made Tanya gasp again straight afterwards. The light she was sitting in suddenly had a shadow in it, and she nearly gasped another time because of its weird arm, but she realized it was Father even before he opened the back door. She hopped off the step quickly to run back to the front, but she slipped and fell, hitting her knee on the stony ground and tumbling some way down the path so it scraped the skin of her shins. Then Father was there, kneeling next to her and hushing her tears. It's all right, he said. It'll be all right. This time Tanya believed him. Even after she'd been sent to bed, Tanya laid awake for a long time. She kept pressing her knee, which felt bigger than usual and squishy. It hurt a little bit, but not too much, and the strange feel of it was interesting. It felt like the curtain did sometimes when it was full. Further down from her knee, her shin pulsed with a dull throb. She could ignore that, though, because she was still trying to hear mother and father talking. She tried, but she couldn't make the sounds into proper words. When she closed her eyes to hear better, she fell asleep. She dreamt of Grandma, calling her name from the front room, but every time Tanya went to see, she wasn't there. It was nearly afternoon when Tanya woke up, which was all right because there was no school. She got up and winced because the sheet was stuck to her leg for a moment. She had a thin scab over her scrape, and her knee was a dark color, but it only hurt if she touched it. It made her remember Father's arm, and she went to see if it was better. The bed in his room was empty. She went to Mother's room, but hers was empty, too. 
It still smelled of the sick smell, but the window was open and the bed was sort of made. Ma? Mother was in the kitchen. She was trying to make bread, but she wasn't pushing the dough very hard. Breakfast? There's some oats left. Tanya shook her head. Your father's gone into work today. What about his arm? Yes, well, he's going to see if there's a different job he can do if he can't do his usual one. Is it better? No, I doubt he'll get a better job, not now. I meant, is his arm better? Of course it's not better. Tanya was worried. Mother was moving the dough around, but she wasn't doing much except pushing flour onto the floor. I can help, Tanya said. She went to the sink to wash her hands because she'd been playing with her new scab. I can do it. I'm not a cripple. Then she leant over the dough and her shoulders began to shake. Sorry, hummingbird, she said. Her voice sounded watery. Sorry. Tanya said it was all right. Why don't you go and play for a while? But Tanya didn't want to play, not with other children anyway. Not today. She went to the living room and looked to see if her circles were still there in the dust. They were, though a couple had been scuffed a bit by father's boots. The flies were still there, too, and at first she thought there were more, but it was a scattering of loose pebbles from the path outside where she fell. Next to them was the handkerchief father had used on her shin. She gathered the little stones up into her palm, leaving tiny dots where her fingertips touched the cloth. She could have used the handkerchief, but she wanted to feel the cool clamminess of the curtain to see if it felt different. She couldn't tell. Some people didn't like to touch it at all, and they would let their blood, Mother said. When Tanya said that sounded unfinished, Mother said it would never be finished. So Tanya still didn't know what they let their blood do. It gave people scars, though. She spent the afternoon waiting for her father to return, putting tiny pebbles into each circle she'd drawn, and picking carefully at the scab on her leg. It was still too fresh, but she could lift it at the edges if she was gentle. Eventually, after some careful, patient picking, she had only the fresh pinkness of new skin on her shin and the thin scab in her hand. She dropped it where the curtain gathered on the floor. It was bleached white in moments. What are you doing? Mother stood in the doorway. She had flour on her dressing gown and on her cheeks. Nothing, said Tanya, but Mother came over anyway to see. By then the scab had crumbled to something a bit like flour, and then even that was gone, and they were looking at the nothing, Tanya had said. You shouldn't play so close to it, said Mother. Why? Mother didn't reply. She just stared at the curtain, looking like she had a hundred questions of her own or was carefully considering an answer to a different question altogether. When Father returned, he had a slip of paper that said he couldn't work in the caves. They've shut it down. Mother was laying on her side because it made breathing easier, but she turned and sat up. All of it? Just the system where it happened. Officially, it's because of maintenance, but really they're worried the taste has hungered it. They didn't cut the cloth, so now they need to let it settle, starve a little, work the other cave so it doesn't think, well, whatever it thinks. Then they'll declare the machine safe again. Can you work one of the others? Father sat on the bed and reached out to take her hand. He reached with his bad arm out of habit, but Mother pulled away at first. Then she apologized and held it, and Tanya wondered if she should be watching. She was in the doorway, standing on tiptoes and then lowering herself. Tiptoes up and then back down. It was easy if you held the door frame, but trickier if you didn't. There's not much going. 
Now that they've closed one cave, they've had to reassign men enough as it is. And some are out of work until it's open again. But you... I was the man responsible. It's fair. It's not fair. Mother raised his arm by the wrist and shook it so his hand flapped. Stop it, Marjorie. You've got this and nothing else and a child to feed and put through school. Stop it. She dropped his arm and he pulled it away from her. You still want to move? Fine. Where will we go? Look at what happened at the other places. The loss of livestock and sometimes worse, often worse. The lotteries are a whole town enveloped just because... I don't think that happens. She said it to the covers, and even Tanya could tell Mother didn't mean it. We all pay our bit and it stays away and we do all right. The accident's ours. The blood I lost has been reassigned to us. We'll be all right for a while. I'll find something. Mother closed her eyes. I need to get better, Henry. That's all. Yes. He stroked her forehead. He used his good hand. Get better. Mother smiled and looked at him, took up his other hand in her own again. It was a moment so intimate and tender that Tanya stepped away quietly from the room. Why isn't your mother sick? Koji shrugged, but he had an answer. She had an operation after I was born. What kind of operation? He shrugged again, and this time there was no answer except, I don't know. But she could pay tribute now if she wanted. Father won't let her, though. Tanya wondered if the sickness and the blood cloth in the mountains was linked. Mother said it was. She said it couldn't take their blood, so it took something else in a different way. Blood, sweat, tears, and spirit, she'd said. She'd been trying to explain what happened to Grandma, and Tanya wondered how she didn't cry because she couldn't stop. Tanya remembered it very well. She'd come home from school, and the first thing she'd noticed was the curtain in the front room was gone. The wall behind it was a cleaner dark color than the rest of the wood, and for a moment it looked like a door. Next, she noticed Father's work things on the kitchen table, which meant he was home early. She went rushing into her parents' room, for they'd shared a bed back then, calling for them, wanting to ask about Father being home and the missing curtain, but also wanting to tell them about school and not knowing what order to do it in. They weren't there, but coming out she heard hurried voices, sharp like an argument but not angry, coming from Grandma's room, and then Father was coming out. Hey, little darling. He tried to close the door behind him, but she screamed for Grandma because she'd already seen inside. It startled Father enough that she was able to get past his legs and into the room. Mother was sitting beside the bed, her eyes red and puffy from crying. Grandma must have been in the bed like always, but Tanya couldn't see her because the curtain was laid across it. She could tell where she lay, though, because the blood cloth was a dark crimson color clinging to the shape of her body like wet linen. Tanya could see the shape of Grandma's head, the tiny slope of her nose, the pillow rise of her breasts. She could see each arm, the hand's little spheres where Grandma had clenched them into fists. Her legs together made her seem like a mermaid, especially because of how her feet pointed up and out to make a triangle of curtain cloth. Hummingbird. Tanya thought it was Grandma speaking at first and yelped, but the cloth at her mouth had not sank. She hadn't opened it. She... She can't breathe, Tanya cried. Ma, she can't breathe. Get it off. Father had held her shoulders, tried to turn her around and out of the room, but Mother said no, and that was when she explained. She told Tanya it was Grandma's decision, and she tried to explain about Ubasade, which was a word Tanya had forgotten, 
But Tanya didn't really listen, and she couldn't look at Grandma either. She stared at the curtain pole that had been lent in the corner of the room and one of the gloves Father was supposed to wear at work on the floor beside it, as Mother talked quietly. She said Grandma would always be with them, but Tanya didn't want her always in the curtain, and Mother brushed at her hair and rubbed her back to make her feel better. It didn't help because Mother was still wearing the other glove. Hey, Tanya, Koji pulled her hair to get her attention. She rubbed her eyes and hoped he didn't think the tears were because he'd yanked her ponytail. What? Drummond said that all girls have their own red curtains and that they bleed for a whole week every single month. Is that true? Tanya could see Drummond and his friends having a spitting competition against the schoolhouse wall. The other children were running around each other, calling and laughing and playing games, while she and Koji sat on the bench eating their lunch. I think so, Tanya said. I don't really know. Do you have to cut yourself? Where does it come from? Koji took a bite of his sandwich. Tanya decided not to tell him, and shrugged instead. A whole week, he said around a mouthful of bread. How come you don't die? Tanya didn't know that either. And anyway, thinking of Grandma and how sick Mother was, she sort of thought that they did. Tanya went to bed that night, thinking of the conversation she'd had with Koji and hearing her parents argue quietly in the room next door. It made for a troubled sleep. She dreamt that she went to the caves, which was how she knew she was dreaming, because girls aren't allowed there. She was wearing her father's overalls, the long legs folded under her feet and wedged in the boots like thick socks. The safety helmet on her head was too big. When she looked up at the mountains she was walking to, it fell back and she had to hold it on. And when she looked back down at the path she walked upon, it fell forward and covered her eyes. She had father's long gloves clenched in one hand and kept trying to put them on, but they were always too big or, strangely, too small. And every time she tried, she said, Damn things don't fit right, even though she knew not to say damn. She would throw them to the side of the path, but after a few steps toward the caves, they'd be in her hands again, and she'd try to put them on again, and all the time the caves weren't getting any closer at all. Pulling yet another glove onto her right hand, she felt it fill with cold water, but when it spilled over her cuff, she saw it was actually blood, and she grunted her disgust, pulling the glove off quick and dropping it to the gravel path, which was more like the one in her back garden than the road leading to the caves. Blood continued to spill from the glove, and it began to rise up out of the ground, emerging from beneath the small stones like a bath was filling up underneath. Her shin was bleeding again, but instead of running down her leg, it looked like it was running up from the ground and into her scraped graze. Get away, Mother screamed. Don't play so close to it. But when Tanya looked up, letting the helmet fall off her head this time, she saw not her mother, but all the men from the caves running downhill toward her. Get away, they all yelled together with Mother's voice. Some even made giant gestures with their arms, sweeping them forward to show her which way to run, which was down, down, the same way as them, away from the caves, down. Behind them, spilling from the caves, which were suddenly close, was wave upon wave of thick curtain flesh, blood cloth unraveling from the mountain darkness like a huge fat tongue. It folded upon itself and pushed its way downhill, knocking down trees at the roadside and engulfing those too slow to outrun it. Tanya turned and ran, not to flee the horror, but to warn her parents. But somehow the curtain had overtaken her, and she was running on top of it, terrified of falling over.
It sank and squelched under her feet, blood spitting up like puddle splashes, the meaty smell as thick as the flesh it came from. Ahead of her, the mass of it washed up against the buildings below in giant fleshy waves. It poured into open windows and knocked down doors, filling houses with its hungry cloth that wasn't cloth, was never cloth, demanding its payment with a voice nobody could hear but everybody listened to, which meant they couldn't hear her screaming, No, no, no! The only person who knew she was screaming was Tanya, and it woke her up. Even awake, in her bed, in her room, the fear still gripped her, as tight as the cloth that was all over her like it was on Grandma, clutching at her legs, wrapped around her arms, and she fell from bed trying to get away from it. Father came in and struck a light, mother's calls of concern behind him in the dark house, and Tanya saw the curtain she struggled with was only her own bedding. The sheets were soaked with her sweat and tears, but not with her blood. Tanya blew the dust on the floor, bored of the circles she saw there. She rubbed them away with her hands. The wooden boards under her palm were worn smooth with age and use, and yet she felt a stab of pain. One of the edges had been scuffed and rough, and now she had a splinter in the pad of her finger. She pulled it out easily and waited for the blood to rise, wondering if she should give it to the curtain. She was never scared of her own blood like some children were. Blood is a sign of living, father said. He won't bleed right. Not anymore. Tanya looked up because it sounded like Grandma, but of course Grandma wasn't there. The curtain shivered in a breeze. The back door was open to let some air in for Mother, but Tanya couldn't feel any. He'll not be able to work. Not a good job. And you know what'll happen then. The blood had come without her seeing. A small drop of it on her fingertip. A perfect half-sphere rising from her skin a tiny ruby. The curtain brushed at the floor, tipping fly carcasses from its folds. You could. Tanya popped her finger into her mouth and, watching the curtain, sucked her own blood away. The curtain was still. Tanya thought about what Grandma did and thought if she did it, yanked the curtain down and let it fall on her, then Father wouldn't need to worry about work until he got better. And Mother might even get better, too, and everything could go back to normal. Except it wouldn't be normal, because Tanya wouldn't be here. She'd be with Grandma. And that bit would be all right, but not being stuck in the curtain. She wondered what it would feel like letting it take her blood, all of it. And she wondered what it would feel like to let her blood, let it do whatever it did when you gave yourself scars. It will feel noble. Tanya stood and went to the kitchen, where she couldn't see the curtain anymore and couldn't hear it use Grandma's voice. She would ignore the curtain's call. There were dirty dishes still from when she made the stew, and she thought she would wash them for Mother. That was what she meant to do. Instead, she took up the knife she'd cut the vegetables with. She took it to the front room. She still felt no breeze, yet the curtain, heavy as it was, shuddered. Tanya sat where it bunched in the corner, where the crooked pole dropped too much of it to the floor so that it gathered. She took up a length of it and felt immediately the pull of it in her hands. Was this how it felt when Father paid? Was this how it felt when his arm was swamped with its meaty crease? She felt warmth, like she'd plunged her hand into heated mittens, but none of it came from the cloth. Her hands were blushing, and wherever the cloth clutched her it fattened pink, red, and her hands were numbing. She had to be quick. She held the knife to the curtain edge and pulled it across. 
The flesh parted easily, easier than she had expected, like slicing a mushroom. One moment, and suddenly Tanya had a long corner length of blood cloth in her lap. It curled where it had been cut, and it bled a little before it could close. But it wasn't the curtain's blood, really. It was hers. Her hands tingled as if she'd been leaning on them too long, the tickly prickle of pins and needles. There was no blood on them. On the wall it rose in peaks, her blood rising like fire from the curtain's new wound. She wouldn't touch it again. This time she would bring her arm down in a long, hard swing, dragging the blade through the cloth flesh until she had split it down the middle. She would make it bleed. She would make it give back all that it had. Mother's scream was so shrill, so loud, so close, that at first Tanya thought it had come from the curtain. It had burst the still air of the room at the precise moment she struck, and she thought she'd stabbed Mother, that Mother was behind the curtain. But Mother was not behind the curtain, she was beside it, as sudden as her scream had been, and she wrenched the knife away from Tanya's hand and pushed her back to the floor with surprising strength for one so sick. What are you doing? Don't! Tanya landed hard on her behind, teeth coming together on her tongue. She covered her mouth against the pain with both hands. The long slit in the curtain gaped at her as if surprised. There was nothing inside it, and nothing behind but wall. What are you doing? Tanya couldn't answer. She couldn't say anything. Her mouth hurt so much. She wasn't even sure Mother had asked the question this time because she didn't wait for an answer. She pressed the parted blood cloth together quickly, kneading it with more vigor than she had the bread, smoothing it over with her palms. It took nothing from her, of course, but it took the shape she forced it into. She retrieved the bloated slug length of its severed piece and pushed it to open flesh, rubbing it into a new seam just as she had countless times at the drapery, because the cut was fresh. It held, and it healed. She turned to Tanya. Her breath was wheezing. She was wide-eyed, and Tanya saw the fear there turn to anger. But before she could take the full force of any reprimand, Mother's expression changed again. It softened. A glance down at something that had caught her eye caused her to return Tanya's pained look with one that Tanya had never seen before. For an absurd moment, it was like she had a sister instead of a mother, and only the quiet talking of the clock separated them. Oh, baby. Tanya looked to her lap and saw the skirt of her dress was stained with blood. Not much, just a little where it bunched between her legs. It's mine, she said. Something she'd made the curtain give back. It made her want to smile, but she didn't because Mother was kneeling down next to her like Gerald had tried to do, and she put her hand to Tanya's cheek and then to the side of her head, tucking a curl behind her ear. Yes, it's yours. Just a bit earlier than expected, that's all. She began stroking Tanya's hair back. I heard Grandma. Hmm? Mother was smiling. She was breathing easier, too. In the curtain. Never mind the curtain, Mother said. Not now. The curtain was quiet. It made smiling back easier, especially when Tanya saw that, despite Mother's efforts, it now had some scars of its own. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Ray. Ray, thank you so much for that. And Ruth, big thank you. Thank you so much. Like I said, that story could be on Tales to Terrify, but it's always nice for you just to pop over there anyways and say hello to Larry, over to Crime City Central to say hello to Jack, 
and go over to Protecting Project Pulp to see Simon. There you go. But come over to see SofaCon, 20th of July. Please come over, have a, have a listen. You know, it's a, it's a full day event from four, 5 o'clock my time, UK time, right through to probably after 10, to be quite honest, by the time we're, we're getting all sorted out. So a good five hours of entertainment there for you for £10, 10 shiny pounds. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa of Activation Procedure Initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1... 